Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Where ag and life collide. Brought to you by Gow. Patty Gentry, New York chef turned farmer, and she's got a movie. We'll talk it all right now. Hello, America, and a growing audience around the world. Welcome to Open Field Radio, raising the hip factor in agriculture. That's what we do. And speaking of hip, our guest today, she's unbelievably cool. I'm pretty darn excited. Patty Gentry's on the show today. New York City chef turned farmer. Now, there's a whole story that goes with this on me finding her, which is equally as fun. And we talk about it a bit in the show, but literally, I was reading the paper online, of course, because that's what we do now. Remember those days with a real newspaper? You know, your uncle sat on the porch with the paper and a coffee and a cigarette? That was a morning. But I see this web banner for this movie. And because my head is in agriculture and I do this show, I like movies, agriculture, all these things. And here's this movie called The Soul of a Farmer. And I thought, that's cool. I click on it and I see this cool trailer. I'm like, that's awesome. Who's she? Dig around, look her up. I write her an email. She writes me back. What? Super cool. And the story is much cooler than that. That's the elevator pitch on the whole episode, though. You'll want to stick around for that. Had a great time over the past couple of weeks checking in on the 2022 Craft Malt Conference brought to you by Craft Malting and the Craft Malters Guild. Very cool. Online conference, virtual conference, but a ton of information. Very cool. And to all the Craft Malting folks, thanks for including Open Field Radio as a media resource. Much appreciated. Great to be included. Well, let's not mess around. We got a lot of shit to get to. Patty Gentry is here and I'm stoked. Let's do this. Open Field Radio Season 2 Episode 14 in plus or minus 90 seconds. Open Field Radio. So, at the time this is recorded, the job availability in the United States is nearly 11 million jobs. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com slash careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com slash careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. So you know when you're digging around online and you find those lists of if you like this, then that, well, this one's pretty cool. Maybe it's one of those they know you by the company you keep kind of things. But I found a list that said if you like open field radio, then you might like these podcasts. Check it out. How about Smartless with Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett? Not bad. How about the Ben Shapiro show from the Daily Wire? How about Dateline NBC? How about the Daily Show from the New York Times? That's only the biggest podcast in the world. NPR News and Conan O'Brien's podcast. You know what? You know them by the company they keep. That's pretty good company. That's why you listen to Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. Open Field Radio Season 2, Episode 14 with Patty Gentry starts right now. Hello. Patty? Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Five o'clock in your world? Five o'clock and absolutely gorgeous. It was almost 60 degrees today and it's like... You can just taste springtime coming, which is so nice. You're in Long Island, right? Correct. Yep. Long Island, New York, a little bit further out east. And it's 60 and, degrees uh, in February. Yeah. You got to love that. Yep. But it's going down to 26 tonight and high of 36 tomorrow. Of course. It's always <laughs> like that, February, March, you know? Right. Yeah. You just have to, these couple of months, it's like you just have to. Just be patient. It doesn't pay to be hasty because you've had a couple of months like planning on planting and all that and you want to get going, but it's really good to be patient. Well, speaking of patience, thanks for being patient on this side as we've gone back and forth trying to make this thing happen. I uh, I appreciate that very much. Thank <laughs> you for your interest in the farm. You know what? It's really cool because I discovered you and the farm and the film and, and, and through a random, like, I was reading the newspaper online and this banner came across about the film, which I was like, hey, check that out. And which led me down this rabbit hole, which of course led me to you. So, well, it's even cooler is as I, I wrote you, or I wrote, I went to your website. I went to the farm website and I was like, I don't know. So I just went to the contact us and sent a message out and nine times out of 10, nothing comes back. 
And what came back right. was you writing me back. And I was like, wow, that is really of course. <laughs> fantastic. So We're so small. It's like very, very small, you know, the farm. And I do all that stuff. I try to be good about getting back to people, you know. Bless your heart. That's a lot of work. It's important. It really, really is. Take me through this process because this seems like a life journey that is far from over, but it didn't start yesterday. Prior to farming, you were a chef. You are a chef. Can you give me the timeline and, and how this whole thing helped me connect the dots through this process? Sure. The only thing I ever really wanted to do was cook, you know, ever since high school. And um, I think I, I tried going to college to become a physical therapist. And halfway through my first semester, I called my mom and I was like, Mom, I really want to go to cooking school. So <laughs> that's what I did. I uh, I I transferred over to uh, Johnson & Wales Cooking School, and I did a two-year associate's program there. And I knew nothing. I did very well at school because I loved studying, but I had no real practical experience. And I went out into the field, and it was a long road for me to become more of an asset than a liability in the kitchen. <laughs> but but I, I loved it so much, you know? Sure. And, I, and, and so I did it for a, while, a long time, for 25 years. And... It's a wonderful industry. It's exciting. You meet so many wonderful people and you work together so intensely. They become like a second family in each situation. Every restaurant, you just get very close and sometimes you make lifelong friends. So that was an incredible enriching experience. And thankfully, my skills improved. I had some very wonderful, talented, patient chefs give me a chance when I was in my 20s. And sure. uh Practice, practice, practice. And, you know, I became a person that people could rely on to get them through a busy service at the saute station or grill station. But it just took time. I was in it for a while. I started to get managerial jobs. And um, the last job I had before I went into farming, I managed a South Indian restaurant called the Hampton Chutney Company. We specialized in dosas, which is a crepe made from rice and white lentils. All right. Delicious. And I was running their shop, Gary and Isabel McGurn, good friends of mine, very talented people. I was running their shop for them in Soho, Manhattan. And um, I was living in Brooklyn and I joined the Park Slope Food Co-op, which introduced me to locally grown foods. So at home, I really started to eat local cheeses and local fruits and vegetables and local chicken, you name it. And it just kind of sparked an interest in me in what it takes to grow that kind of food. So I was a partner at that business. I sold my shares back to my business partners and I just had this feeling inside myself but wasn't sure how to go about making it a reality. And I just put into the Google search bar, I just sold my shares back to my business partners when I want to become a farmer like, what should I do? And up came a few answers, actually. Really? Yeah. One was a small farming program in California where they accepted like 35 people from around the world and they showed you how to grow on the side of the mountain, terrace okay. farming, oh, cool. and yeah. also in a, in a valley. But I was I was involved with somebody on the East Coast. I didn't want to leave. So I ended up getting this job at a place called Eco Farm. It's East End Community Organic Garden in East Hampton, Long Island. Okay. And I was, I think I was 40 when I started to do that work. Mm -hmm. And I was an intern. I worked under this guy named Paul Hamilton. He was an incredible farmer, incredible teacher. And uh, at the end of my internship, he gave me a seeding machine called an Earthway Seeder. And he said, you're going to be a farmer. And I thought, oh, my God, what a beautiful thought. Long story short, that was the beginning for me. And that's how I got into farming. And I kept my hand in the restaurant business for a while. I, I had a job at a private school in East Hampton where I had summers off. And I leased an acre that I worked by myself. And in two years' time... I matched my salary at this private school where I was just a cook. And I thought, okay, yeah. like, I'm going to give this a try to become a full-time farmer. And that was 12 years ago. That's how it all began. Wow. First thought, life doesn't start till 40. I don't care how old you are right now, whatever, nothing. Uh, whatever happened before 40, at 40, life doesn't start till 40. That was my feeling on it. 
You know what? It it doesn't matter. It's like it's incredible. I just met two women um, at a place called the Canal House Station in New Jersey. I think mm-hmm. I went to a I went to a book signing. My friend Dorothy Kalins, she's married to Roger Sherman, who did the documentary. Yeah. She has a new book out called The Kitchen Whispers, which is incredible. And to celebrate it, we went to this restaurant. It's run by two women. I think Christopher Hersheimer is one of the women and Melissa Hamilton, if memory serves correctly. But they're, I think, in their 60s. And they started this restaurant not long ago. Nice. And the restaurant is one of the most incredible experiences I ever had, run by these two older women. And it's just so inspiring because I think with wisdom kind of comes like restraint and you become a little bit more selective about where you invest yourself and you don't hopefully waste as much time. But you still take chances and you want to challenge yourself. And, you know, if you're healthy, then I think you can do pretty much anything at any age. Well, that's a big step to go from, uh, and I say security, you had a job, you had a gig going on and a pretty darn good one at that. And then step out on your own into something as uh, vulnerable, if you will, as farming. Yes. I mean, it doesn't feel vulnerable. It's like you have a vision. It's like your dream keeps you going. It's like, I never think about, like, the problems that I'm going to have. I have problems that I never foresee. And (laughs) that is, (laughs) like, you know, they they say, like, problems are really opportunities. And it's true. When you really love something or someone, right, you fall in love and you're never like, oh, it's never going to last. You're like, we're going to be together forever. (laughs) You know, know, you're always hope for the best, right? right? right. I mean, why would you any different until that time comes, you know, it is it's challenging, but like, what isn't, but, and nothing's insurmountable. It's like the, the type of farming that we practice, which is regenerative farming, builds soil and builds this little ecosystem that over time gets stronger and stronger. And it supports the life that you put into it and, and it, things get easier. Along the way, you have these challenges, but as I said, they're really opportunities to look at your methodology and your stewardship and to learn. You're listening to Open Field Radio. So here you go. EcoSwing from Gowan, USA is an OMRI-listed botanical fungicide created using proprietary plant extracts. Gotta love it. EcoSwing is labeled for use on many different crops to control powdery mildew, botrytis, monolinia, alternaria, and several other diseases. And it's a global leader in fungicidal control of several key pathogens. EcoSwing makes a valuable addition to your integrated pest management program. Add another mode of action to your disease control defense and combat possible resistance from overuse of other actives. EcoSwing. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you, you know me. Oh, look, we're just regular people, right? And when it comes to promoting open field radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody, knock on somebody's door, call them up, send them a text, whatever, and tell them you're listening to open field radio. And by golly, they should be too. It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. This is Daniel Carmichael, Bear Flag Robotics, Newark, California. Season 1, Episode 12. And you're listening to Open Field Radio. Quick shout out to some folks we know are listening to Open Field Radio. Say hello to Newport News, Virginia, Ontario, Oregon, Melrose Park, Illinois, Augusta, Maine, Wellington, Florida, Palma Campania, Italy, and Whitehorse, Canada. Thanks for listening. From the Gowan Global Studio deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. Now, for our listeners, because this is an ag-centric show, but it's not an ag-exclusive show. So we've got, you know, general market listeners and ag industry listeners, et cetera, et cetera. Your farm, how big is your farm? My farm is two acres. Yes. I was hoping that's what you did. <laughs> I knew it was small. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, like I said, we've got some ag industry folks that listen to this that have two acres. That's their, you know, backyard. But the reality is you're making it happen on two acres. Early girl farm, correct? Correct. Tell me about it. Well, I mean, one of my teachers was a man named Dale Halbrick, who um, has an organic farm in Sag Harbor on Long Island. And I worked with him one summer. And 
he has a reputation that he could grow food in cement. Like he's amazing. <laughs> and he's incredible. He turned his, his, his backyard into a thriving, productive garden. And he had an acre at the same place I leased my first acre. And he planted so judiciously, so closely. He maxed out every square inch of one acre and was able to grow tons of food from one acre. And so that was one of my first experiences farming. And I just loved it. I loved it because you could almost like put your arms around two acres. Right. But as you, as you build the soil, what you see is an exponential growth in yield. So from the same amount of space as the organic matter improves, as your techniques in watering and your mineral reserves improve and everything, your, your spacing, your companion planting, all these things, all these techniques that take, that take practice and time to really understand as you understand them and as you build this little ecosystem from the same amount of space, you get higher and higher yield. So you, you can feed hundreds and hundreds of people from two acres. We have 150 CSA members at our farm, but that's 150 times four people, plus restaurants, plus a little market, all from two acres. So that's incredible. it's amazing. Now, for clarification, CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Pretty cool idea. Nothing new or novel, just cool. And Patty utilizes it so well. In Patty's case, it's basically a subscription to the awesome products from her farm. You subscribe locally and you show up, pick up your stuff, and it looks amazing. And you go home happy, of course, because Patty grew it for you. Community projects like farmers markets and stands are commonplace and growing in population popularity in certain areas. Be sure to check out Patty's CSA on the earlygirlfarm.com site and check your local listing for a CSA near you. Well, when you made the decision to leave the restaurant industry, leave that world, jump into the farming world, and not jump because there was a process, but to get into the farming world, if for lack of a better word, who was your clientele? Who were you looking at? It's like, okay, I'm going to have a little farm and it's going to provide for who? What was your initial thought? All the people I'd worked for in the restaurant industry. Awesome. So farm to table, when I started in the restaurant business, wasn't like it is today where the restaurants, the, like a finer restaurant, fine dining experience. And, and, you know, even, you know, not even of that like high caliber as like a white tablecloth place, but people are like expecting restaurants to source a little bit locally. And that's easier said than done for a chef who's very busy. I mean, they work 15 hours a day and, you know, they want like a standardized menu. And when you work with a farm, a small farm, it's, it's, you have to be flexible and also you have to be able to get the ingredients. So, and it's hard, like not everybody can go to the farmer's market and pick out what's fresh every day. So my idea was, let me bring the farmer's market to the kitchen door. And I thought for the chefs that like can't get to a farm or a farmer's market that having a relationship with me would be the closest thing they could get to that. Like they can call me and I'm standing in a field of beans and I could say, this is what they look like. This is what they taste like. And I can be very honest with them. Like this is the second cutting from this bed of lettuce. So it's not as soft as it was last week. It's a little more toothsome. It's a little bit more bittersweet. And so I wanted to like be that like a translator almost from the plants to the chefs. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And I wanted to like bring them the vegetables. Like I wanted to do all the sorting, all the washing. So it was an easy experience for them to get our produce where they would open up a crate and they knew that if we were delivering it, that I had already sorted it. I, we had already washed it. Because so many times when I was in the restaurant business, I wouldn't have time to check in a produce order and I'd ask the driver to leave it and I'd go unpack it an hour later and be like, oh man, like the basil's all black. I, I shouldn't have received this. And then like the process of sending it back. So I want to be the person who, if they're getting a crate of basil, that it's green, it's healthy, like that I wanted to take that work out of that puzzle for the chef. So it would be more like just pure joy 
using what we could grow. And you speak their language. I mean, you totally understand what they're looking for and what they're going through trying to get the product. Yep. I have so much sympathy. I have so much admiration for them. And uh, that was what I wanted to do. That's how I started the business, serving exclusively restaurants. And if I understand it right, for you, for all of us, of course, but for you as the farmer, flavor is number one in all that you grow. Yes. Flavor is the goal. You know, when you think about food that you've had in the past, you have like a taste memory. You remember whatever it is, a piece of fried fish with tartar sauce or a delicious arugula salad with like crispy shallots and goat cheese or like a piece of grilled squash with extra virgin olive oil and chopped basil and parsley. It's like, you know what you're going for. And so like those taste memories are the things that inform our methodology in the field. It's like, how do we go from the memory of something so delicious and actually produce it for people? So I always say that the gap between my fantasy and my reality gets a little bit shorter each year, but there's always a gap. It's never exactly it's what I'm saying. It's never spot on, right? You know? <laughs> exactly. That's true. Well, at this, at the moment that you go, okay, now I'm a farmer. Now all I need is a farm. How did you do this? How did you do? I mean, I wouldn't know what to do. And I'm in the industry. I wouldn't know what to do. How how did you do it? It's amazing. Well, I just feel like one of the cool things about small scale farming is you could use someone's backyard to start a farm. Like, you don't need you don't need to get ten acres of land, and and I have people that talk to me about starting farms. Like some of the chefs are like, we want to have a farm, and my my thing is start small. I feel like a half acre of well tended vegetables will yield more than five acres of something that you can't control. Sure. You can't feed. You can't water. You can't keep cultivated. So I leased the place where I was an intern, this place called Eco Farm in East Hampton, leased acres to entrepreneurial farmers. So there was this program where you could get an acre of land for a song, basically, <laughs> and try, try to become a farmer. So that's how I started it out. And then when I became a full-time farmer, I wanted to farm closer to home. And my father knew that I was looking for land. And there was a woman named Sue Drake who lived in my town who had once had, she was on two acres of land. And her front yard, she actually had as a little farm and flower garden for years. But, you know, it had been five years or more since she'd done anything with it. And my father went to her back door and knocked on it and said, my daughter is a farmer and she's looking for land to lease. Would you lease her this plot? And she said, sure. Like she was the <laughs> coolest person because who would let you really farm right. their front yard? Right. But she's an amazing human being who like was so into helping me. And that's how I started with one acre at Sue Drake's house in East Mauritius, New York. And I didn't know, I really didn't know much. I, and you know, ignorance is bliss. Like, you know, so I just kind of, as you say, I had a little bit of experience from my internship and an acre that I leased that I did kind of part-time. And my first foray as a full-time farmer, like this is my sole source of income, was on this acre of land that was two minutes away from my house, which made it so doable. I like Patty's honesty there. She says, I didn't really know much. Most of us could not or would not say that about ourselves. But in all honesty, a career change of that magnitude at that point in your life, that's a big deal. But interestingly enough, statistically, the average age for a person to change careers... 39 years old. So Patty fell statistically spot on with that. It's estimated that most people will have 12 jobs during their lifetime. 32% of those 25 to 44 will consider career changes. And since starting their first job after college, 29% of people have completely changed careers. And going back to Patty's statement about not knowing much, Americans who went to school for a specific major do not utilize that major at work. In fact, 21% use all of that education 
education, 53% use half or less of that education, and 15% use none of it. Sometimes, not knowing much just might pay off. For the first year of my, my summer farming, when I also had this kitchen job during the winter months, it was 45 minutes from my house. When you're, when you're farming, it's nice to be close because the plants do need a lot of attention. They need tweaking in the spring. They need, you know, the greenhouse plants need water and ventilation. And it's, it's helpful to be close by. So that's how I started. I started literally farming someone's front yard. <laughs> that's a postcard right there. And from one acre, how long did you farm one acre till it became two? Well, I did Sue's acre, and then I wanted to grow winter squash. So I, uh, someone I knew had like a half an acre that they weren't using, and they let me grow winter squash there. And then another person in town bought a restaurant that had a little area in the back where they wanted to grow food for their restaurant, and they let me grow my onions there when they first got started. So I had a little piece here, a little piece there, and I was, you know, that's how I did it. And I'm on Long Island where land is expensive and it's not plentiful. And so a lot of the times you're getting an abandoned lot. That's what happened with me. I mean, the, the, the place where I had, where I grew my winter squash, people just dumped their garbage there and it was all overgrown. And I mean, I found telephone receivers and (laughs) toys and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Sure. And I, I always work the soil as if I'm going to be there a lifetime. I mean, I don't know any other way. So we'd bring in compost and we'd bring in minerals. And I feel like it's my obligation to leave a piece of land, however big or small, in better condition than I found it. Like, that's my contract with Mother Nature, you know? So that's how I started. Yep. So that's how it started. First, you're a chef in New York City. Then you become a farmer. And then, of course, somebody wants to make a movie about you. Hmm. Her movie is called The Soul of a Farmer. And you can find it, well, I found it on iTunes. I'm sure you can find it all over the place. It's worth the hunt. It is spectacular. And I mean it. I didn't know what to expect when I clicked it on. You know, here it goes. We're going to watch this thing. And by the time you're done, it is just the nicest story with the nicest people with some very, very, very pretty food. When we were finished watching it, my wife said, I want to go there. Man, that's a good sign. A lot of hard work went into this film, and you owe it to yourself to check it out. The Soul of a Farmer. As I said, I found you via a a web banner, and it had to do with a movie. Can you talk to me about the movie? Where'd that start? How did that get going? Not everybody gets a movie. That's true. (laughs) Um, I became very good friends with Roger Sherman and his wife, Dorothy Kalins. Um, When I first started farming, they would come to Sue Drake's property and shop at the farm stand I had there, which when I first started was self-serve. I just had a cash box out and I was serving restaurants and the farm stand thing I just let people help themselves. And so they were my customers from the day I started to become a full-time farmer. And then I, as I moved to, eventually I, I got this two acres of land in Brookhaven where I'm currently working. And I would, you know, have a farm stand here, a farm stand there, and they would follow me wherever I went. And, you know, Roger understood like my process and he'd known, you know, what I went through to do this for a living. And he was fascinated by it. He thought that just through my talking to him about what was going on, he felt that I could articulate what it is to be a small scale farmer in a way that people could understand and appreciate. So one day he approached me at the farmer's market that I had and he said, I have this incredible idea. I said, what is it? He said, I'm going to do a movie about you that's just going (laughs) to show, like, the reality of farming. And I went, really? And I tried to talk him out of it. Mm -hmm. I said, but there's this farmer and that farmer, and they're so much more successful than I am and have more to say. And he was insistent that it was me. And my mom said something to me, which was like, you know, like, if you can share information that can inspire someone or help someone... That's so beneficial. And so, like, look at it that way. And so I did. And so I said, Roger, okay, let's do this thing. And so over 
something like a three-year period of time, he would sporadically come down to the farm and film whatever we were doing. And because he's a very dear friend of mine, I have a very open, you know, conversation with him and, you know, we love each other. So I feel like that kind of comfort level comes through in the film. And I didn't know, I didn't really see anything as it was being filmed. I had really didn't know what it had become. And when it was finished, he said, you want to, like, it's ready. (laughs) And so I remember sitting at the computer with Roger and his wife, Dorothy, and my wife, Jen. We all sat there, and I thought, oh, Lord, like, you know how it's like seeing yourself is not, like, it's, you know. So I didn't know what to expect, and I ended up crying because it was, I felt that he saw so much beauty that I... I didn't see. It is beautiful. Thank you. I mean, I'm always thinking like I could do better. I can do better. I can do better. And he shows the beauty in everything, in the weeds and the bugs and Mm -hmm. the things that are perfect and gorgeous. And then the things that are struggling to find their beauty. And I felt that it was a very real and and very sensitive kind of documentary about, you know, what, what, the joy and heartache of doing what we do for a living. It is a very genuine film. Watched it today. I watched it a month ago, I think. Nonetheless, I watched it today again. And uh, it is. It is so genuine and so kind and so real, for lack of a better word. It, uh, Thank you. That's all Roger. He, he's very special, you know, and he has done many documentaries. And he is he's a true artist he sees something that he's passionate about and he wants to capture it and you know it's just him and his camera and and no frills and so it's all about emotion and and he's able to capture that and he's just such a lovely human being that you just open up to him and he can go places in his films that not many people can go because people trust and love him so I feel honored that he felt that the farm was worthy of a subject matter for one of his films. It's the first film you've ever done? Yes, it's the it's <laughs> it's first film I've ever done, probably the last. Well, but, not, um, well, but not, yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, not everybody does their first film and has Isabella Rossellini in their film. That's true. She's amazing. <laughs> she was, I mean, I, that was very, very fortunate that fate brought us together. I... My my wife really wanted to buy a house in this town of Brookhaven, and I thought, okay, she's very passionate about living here. Let me see if I can find land close to home, because as I was saying earlier, like, that's always the best. And I would, as we drove around looking at houses, I saw big abandoned lots, land for sale that no one had purchased. And I said to the realtor, well, Jen really wants to live here, so if you can find me an acre... So I can farm closer to home. You know, I was I was looking for land to expand. She said she would look, and then she called me and said, "You're never going to believe this. Isabella Rossellini just bought 28 acres and is looking for someone to farm it. Here's her cell phone number." Isabella Rossellini, holy cow! To me, that's glamour, glamour, glamour. If you're unfamiliar with her, shame on you. <laughs> I'm kidding. But my favorite memories of her are when she used to appear on the Late Show with David Letterman. He would get so worked up she was coming on the show. She was in the film White Nights. That's with Mikhail Bereshnikov and uh, Gregory Hines. Just you know, a little dance film there. Blue Velvet, the David Lynch film with uh, Dennis Hopper. Ooh. And everybody's favorite Death Becomes Her with uh, Meryl Streep. Goldie Hawn and a bunch more. She's beautiful. She's got that great accent. She's been on the cover of every fashion magazine you can imagine. Oh, and by the way, her mom was Ingrid Bergman. Hmm. You know, for me, as like as I was growing up, my mother loved fashion, and we always had Vogue and Elle, yeah. all those magazines right. around the house. So I grew up like looking at her face, right? And I love film, so I knew her movies, and I was so nervous calling her. I'm like, is this? I can't even believe this is real. Like, and I called her and she's so down to earth. And I, I met her and, um, we walked around the property, which was fully wooded. It was, it was a training barracks for the army in the 1920s. And so a hundred, a hundred years of growth through the foundations of the buildings that were once there. 
And there was a little patch, maybe an eighth of an acre, that was grassy up by the road where the property begins. And so to start the start the process of Isabella turning it into a farm, we had to she had to relinquish the building rights and have all her ducks in a row before she could clear our current planting space. But what I did to kind of plant her flag in the soil there was I grew sweet potatoes in this little patch that was at the beginning of this like overgrown forest. And so she marked all the old specimen trees so we would save those and all the secondary growth. She cut and pulled the roots out and she was going to clear more than the acreage that I'm farming, but it was so traumatic, disturbing, even the weeds and the vines that had grown over the trees, like so many animals established themselves. And so we kept it really small. And she saved all of the trees and their roots and had them chipped into huge compost piles. And a few years after she, after I started farming there, I reapplied everything that had been taken away. And that was Isabella. She had the foresight to save everything so we could return it all back to the soil. Yep. And, uh, but that soil it was very traumatized. It was like, I, I likened it to like a car crash victim because it was like all this living, all these trees and roots and everything was so connected. And then we took it all down. And so the soil took a while to relax and become the healthy ecosystem that it's on its way to becoming today. So it's been quite an experience. Well, she calls you the Picasso of vegetables. That's a fascinating uh, accolade. Yes, that's very (laughs) generous of her. Um, You know, Isabella is an artist. And I think that she was very delighted by the artistry of growing vegetables because the field is like a canvas. And, you know, you think like, what am I going to plant where? And you're thinking of color and you're like, where everything will be happy. And, and, and then there's the science of it. You're like a mad scientist, like learning about biology and chemistry. And Isabella is a very willing participant and listener. So she cares that we have a molybdenum deficiency or a manganese deficiency. And, you know, so she really thinks of me as like, this kind of like wild artist, you know, and and it's like, you have to have the passion and drive of an artist because there's a lot of like pain that goes along with it, but you love it so much, just like she does. I mean, she's in a difficult industry, you know, the film industry and modeling industry is not kind to you as you get older, but her, her drive to kind of like reinvent herself and to continue to grow as an artist like that kind of drive, she relates to that in me. It's like when you love something so much, you grow with it and you find a way to continue to express yourself and to be flexible and to continue trying. And so I think that that connection made us fast friends, you know? And I see it in the film. When I watch the film, I I see exactly what she sees. I can see 100% how she would identify you in the same mindset as an artist. No no problem at all with that. We talked about flavor being important. You said that the soil itself can tell you a story. The plants are the messengers of the soil. So everything going on above is just basically the language of what's going on below. So if a plant is being eaten by bugs, there's an imbalance systemically that you need to address. And those bugs are there to tell you. I mean, I study with a guy named Dan Kitteridge who runs the Bionutrient Food Association, and he really raises the bar for quality. He taught me how to read a soil test, how to do the math to amend the mineral deficits, how to build organic matter. He introduced me to all the great thinkers in agriculture, like William Albrecht and Phil Callahan and Dr. Maynard Murray and Charles Walters, who started Acres Magazine. And Dan's like, the bugs are nature's garbage disposal. So if they're eating your plants, eat the weeds. Like your plants are inferior for human consumption if they're being eaten by bugs. And that's a really hard pill to swallow when you put in all this energy trying to grow something 
And of course, like we do serve vegetables, they're fine, but they're not as good as they could be. And so that's like the goal is to have the plants be relaxed and healthy, to have them be blemish free on their leaves, to not have them have any type of disease or bug infestation. And even the weeds tell a story. We have a lot of chickweed and chickweed is indicative of organic matter that's not decomposed completely. Dandelion is a sign of calcium deficiency and on and on. So everything on the surface is saying to you, pay attention to what's going on below. It could be as simple as too much or too little water, you know, but every everything gives you an opportunity to kind of fine tune your methods of stewardship and it all starts with the soil. And it's fascinating and there's tons of help out there. There's so much literature. There's so many people who have paved the way to make it easier for people like myself. Now, in Patty's movie, The Soul of a Farmer, Isabella Rossellini says, and she's kidding on the square, I get it. She says, I eat Patty's garbage. She throws away things other farmers would sell. That statement right there tells you the quality Patty is looking for out of her two acres. And that's not saying that Patty has a lot of produce that goes to waste. No, 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 no. Watch the film. You'll see what I'm talking about. You have a very, uh, a very high standard for what you produce. Where did that come from, from the folks you've known along the way? Yes, absolutely. Like we were saying earlier, it starts with that taste memory. So like I always think of sugar as a sign of success, like sweetness in a vegetable to mm-hmm. me is very important. And you come to find out that it's actually true that vegetables with higher sugar content, like there's something called a refractometer. It's a tool we use to measure the amount of sugar in a plant sap. And so as the sugar increases in in the plant sap it's also indicative that it's creating proteins and fats which is the highest form of health for a plant but i learned everything from number one wanting that flavor wanting the sugar to increase and number two people like dan kitteridge who and this other man named john kemp who owns a company company called advancing eco agriculture they set the bar so high and they're like you can create a perfect ecosystem, but you have got to pay attention. The best way to know what to do is to have a communion with everything you're growing. Walk through the plants, touch the soil, see what's happening, be aware and listen, be present, be patient, and continue to try to do the best Thing that you can for nature and it pays off in spades it just takes practice and it looks like you're doing a lot of practicing this is not a five day a week job this is every day every day every day every day isn't it it is but it does get easier i mean i'm getting older i'm 54 years old and i think it's important to have balance in life if i manage it properly and if i can you know, grow the team of people that help me and give them work and give them benefits. It gets a little bit easier each year and and it shows in like now I take Sundays off. This year I'm going to try to take Sunday and Monday off. Good for you. There's a big world out there and people that you love that you need to spend time with to grow those relationships. And people are understanding that you're a farmer only for so long until you stop getting invited to things. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? No, that's the hint, so. right? That's why you've been out there too long. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, your CSA program, the Community Supported Agriculture Program, is fascinating. And I love the way you say they come to you. And they're going to come to you because they want to. That's what they're involved with you that way. Do your chef clients come to you as well? Do they visit the farm? They do. And, I mean, I, I, one of my chefs is a woman named Sohee Kim, and her husband is Ben Schneider. They own several restaurants in Brooklyn. They just opened up a big steakhouse called Gage & Tolner, which was actually voted one of the top 100 restaurants in the United States by the New York Times or New York Magazine this year. And um, they have a place called Insa, which is a Korean barbecue restaurant. And they have a place called the Good Fork, which is kind of like, like I would say, French classical Korean Americana. <laughs> okay, and <got> it. <laughs> uh, they they bought a, a a house out by me, and they joined the CSA. And so so he comes, and she actually loves to help me at the farm. She's brought her staff out, and um, there's an incredible man named Andrew Tarlow 
who really was one of the founders of the farm-to-table movement in Brooklyn. He owns many restaurants, Marlowe and Sons, Marlowe and Daughters, Romans, Achilles Heel. Diner was, I think, his first restaurant. And when I first started farming this property, he and his wife, Kate, and his children would come and help me, and they would bring their chefs down. And I worked with a woman named Missy Robbins, who owns Lilia and Missy in Brooklyn. We've been, we were line cooks together back in the 90s at a restaurant called Arcadia. <laughs> cool. And she's so busy and she's been wanting to come to the farm, wanting to come to the farm, and finally has come a couple of times now. And it really changes the relationship. It, it enriches it. And so most of the chefs have made their way to the farm. And you can tell when they've made their way to the farm because they know the, like, the little beds of things I have that I don't put on the list for people because I think that they're not gonna, I'm not going to have enough. And they'll go, you know that bed of purple basil? Can I get five pounds of that? And I'll say, sure. <laughs> so it's like they have the farm in their mind. Right. And, and it just, it makes it better. It makes it more personal and it, it sweetens the whole exchange. Well, it's kind of full circle in that sense. It's like, you know, yes. they, they see where it's coming from. You see where it's going. And that relationship is cyclical that way. I think that's fantastic. Oh, yes. When we can think about the dishes that we've tasted from the restaurants, and then as you're growing the vegetables, you know the dish that it's going to, and you crave it. And it helps. It's like I always say to the chefs that we hold them in our minds and our hearts as we're planting. We're like, oh, so he's going to love this, or Andrew's going to love this, or his chefs are going to want this. And it does. It just it makes it all the better to have those connections. So I know what you're thinking, and I hear you asking, Mark, what does she grow on this early girl farm? Well, I could tell you, yes, she grows lettuce. And I could tell you, yes, she grows tomatoes and peppers and carrots and all of those things. But here's what I want you to do. Get on the interweb there and check out earlygirlfarm.com. Go to the gallery. Oh, my gosh, because seeing is way better. Because then you can say you saw it for yourself. Not only are the photos amazing, but the volume of what she's growing and the diversity of what she's growing. All of this on two acres. Oh, man. In the film, you said farming made you aware of the winter solstice. And you said it's the beginning of light, yes. not the beginning of winter. Right. Amazing. So December 21st is when we start to get a minute more of light every day. I think that's how it is. We're heading towards light. We're heading towards spring. So I always think of it as the beginning of getting light back. And conversely, June 21st, which I used to think, oh, yay, yeah, the beginning here. of summer yeah. is actually, we start losing light yeah. on June 21st. So it's very interesting. And, you know, June 21st is getting late at the farm. We have to start thinking about getting our fall plants in the ground. By June 1st, we have our winter squash in. But by July 1st and by August 15th at the latest, is when we get cauliflower, broccoli, all those winter or fall crops in the ground. The cauliflower is the thing that really has to go in early, and cabbages and chicories, all kinds of things. So by the middle of June, you're really thinking about planting for fall. So it gives you a different awareness of the seasons. And of course, June 21st is still so celebratory, but there's something about April and May, May especially, is this month where you feel the velocity, the rushing, growing, this incredible, you put a seed in the ground, a plant in the ground, and in May, from May into June, it grows like no other time. This energy is just incredible. I love it so much. May, I have to, I have to say, is like my favorite month for planting things, just because nature is just bursting out. And everything catches that energy at that time. Coast to coast and around the world. You're listening to Open Field Radio. Are you looking for a broad-spectrum botanical insecticide that controls key insect pests on outdoor food crops? Well, look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Proven effective in university tests as an insect growth regulator, repellent, and anti-feedant. Listed by OMRI for use in organic production. Accredited by the USDA NOP. It meets new organic guidelines. Fully compatible for use in an IPM program. And can be applied up to the day of harvest. Tank makes flexibility compatible with many common 
commonly used pesticides. So what about that broad-spectrum botanical insecticide you're looking for? Look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. Open Field Radio. Like. Share. Subscribe. Let me start this by saying this is not a paid advertisement or something someone talked me into doing. This is just me, Mark, talking about something I really like. And what I really like right now are my brand new speakers in my studio here from IK Multimedia. The iLoud Micro Monitors. Whatever your listening status may be, so to speak, whether you work in a studio or you're at home or you need something great on your desk, I kid you not, these are mind-blowing. High-end sound without the high-end price, linear frequency response, zero coloration, transparency, headroom for days. To hear the truth, you need reference speakers that offer up, and these offer up. Do I sound excited? That's because I am. I'm mixing this very show on these speakers right now. They're that cool. Believe what you read. Believe the hype. The iLoud Micro Monitors from IK Multimedia. Check them out for yourself at ikmultimedia.com and tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. This is Michael Ruhlman, author of Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America. Price check on Honey Nut Wonder Rose. Season 1, Episode 4, and you're listening to Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, chef-turned-farmer, Patty Gentry. Farm-to-table, if you will, movement, the hip factor of farm-to-table is cool, but it's far from easy. It's not, I don't think it's anywhere near what the marketers would like you to believe. Come to the farm-to-table, they grew it today and you eat it tonight. There's a lot more that goes right. into that than people, I think, ever, ever really realize. Right. But I'm so grateful that it's a thing. My farm is down the street from another farm called Hamlet Organic Garden in Brookhaven. And Sean Pilger is the name of the young man who runs the farm. And when I started up down the street, I asked him, I said, can I do a CSA? I don't want to encroach on your business. And he says, the more people that grow food, the better. And it's so true. It's like it's such a healthy attitude. And hopefully people will fall in love with it and will want to do it because it is doable. And the more people that do it, the more they document the experience and make it easier for people coming up. And so I feel that the more people that have these experiences that share their experience, the more people are going to try to grow their own food. And I hope they succeed. It's, It's better for everybody. It is challenging, but everything's challenging. I mean, my wife's in corporate America. That's challenging. And, you know, you have this radio show when you need to get people together. And, and like, everything that we do is a, is a challenge. But if you love it, you can do it. You can do it. If I can do it, anyone can, because <laughs> I had zero experience. <laughs> well, I did. Well, I, you're very inspiring. You're very inspiring. Me to you, um, you're you're a treasure. You're you really are. I watched the watched the film. I've spent a, uh, what an hour, an hour now talking with you, and it's just it's refreshing on a thousand levels. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.